Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said, this, said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who, so it is, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever do not, does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is the darkest space that you have ever been in? The darkest space. Have a chat to the person next to you. What's the darkest space you've ever been in? Okay. Hand up if you've ever been caving. Hand up if you've ever been caving. I mean proper sort of caving down in the deep bowels of the earth. When you're caving, if you're right down there, there's no external light that can penetrate when you're down in the cave. And if you turn off your head torch and you hold your hand in front of your face, you, you actually cannot see it at all. It's, it's complete darkness. What's it like when light penetrates that darkness? Now, physical darkness is not the only sort of darkness that exists. You might have been in some dark places. Not physically, but maybe you've been in some dark places emotionally. Maybe you've been in some pretty dark places morally. What we want to think about today is what is it like 
when the light with a capital L, that is Jesus who calls himself the light of the world, when the light enters that sort of darkness. What happens when those two things come together? When light meets darkness. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be doing it by thinking about that little episode that Issa just read for us from John chapters 2 and 3 about Jesus meeting this guy Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish Pharisee. We learn here from John. Pharisees, they were the super-duper Jewish religious guys. They were the people who really cared about God's Old Testament law. They were the ones who really were concerned for holiness, doing everything that was right in the law. They were the ones that everyone was pretty impressed with because they were so holy and righteous, right? He's a Pharisee, but not only that, we learn he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, so he's high up in the whole Jewish religious and social system. And Jesus actually calls him the teacher of Israel, so he clearly knew God's law and had a role to teach God's law to other people. So this is the interaction between this guy Nicodemus and Jesus. So we're going to have a look at it. It would be great if you could open up your Bible and have a look there. It's the, the chapter numbers are not terribly helpful in our Bibles in this particular case. John's story starts in chapter 3, verse 1. It starts back in chapter 2, verse 23. The chapter numbers and verse numbers were only added hundreds of years later after John wrote this account, and they should have started it a bit earlier. So we're going to jump in, first of all, at this, what I've called the situation, which starts in John chapter 2, there in verse 23. Now let's just have a look at this, the general situation that John describes for us here. Now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now, if you've been here at the EU public meeting over the last couple of weeks, as we've started our exploration of John's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. There's a couple of words there that should stand out to you in sort of big, sort of shiny letters. That is the word signs and the word believed. Because what have we already seen in John's Gospel? When Jesus does a sign, does some sort of miraculous sign, that's meant to show us Jesus' glory. That is his divine identity. The sign is meant to show you who Jesus is so you can correctly perceive who he is. And we know from the very end of John's Gospel that Jesus did lots and lots of signs, only some of which John has recorded, but John tells us that he's written these signs down so that we, the readers, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that we might believe Jesus' identity. So sign and believing are big key words in John's whole story about Jesus, the way he tells that story. And what do we read here? Jesus was doing signs, many people saw them, and they believed in his name. So given that the whole purpose is that people might believe in him, you think, great, job done, mission accomplished. But then John tells us something a bit unusual. Verse 24, chapter 2, but Jesus would not entrust himself, literally the word there is, Jesus would not believe himself to them. They're believing in him, but he's not believing in them. This is not a symmetric relationship. Something odd is going on here. What does John say? Jesus would not believe himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need a person's testimony about themselves, for he knew what was in a person. That is, 
He's saying these people who could see what Jesus had done, they could see the signs that he'd done, but they were not correctly perceiving who Jesus was. And so Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he can see there is something dodgy about what they believe about Jesus. That's the situation. That's the setup, right? That's the general comment that John makes on Jesus' experience in Jerusalem. Now he is going to focus us in on a particular person who is a, who is a particular instance of that general phenomena, that general situation. We're going to meet Nicodemus, who fits this sort of picture. Now, I've got a picture up here on the screen. Here's a painting someone's done of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus. And you'll notice here that when John records it in uh, verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. So this painting, they've tried to represent Nicodemus there with the headscarf on, coming to Jesus at night. It's a, far, a bit of an odd little detail to include. I mean, why would John say he came to him at night? I mean, why didn't he say he came to him having had a really bad day at the office or coming wearing his favourite headscarf? Or Why include this detail of he came at night? Is it just a random historical fact that's just included? I mean, it's no doubt probably true. No, that, the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night is going to be significant, but you've got to hold that until we get to the very end of the story, okay? So just keep that in your mind. He came at night. What does that mean? So here comes Nicodemus, and he has this conversation with Jesus. Now, because I want to help you become a more attentive reader of the Bible, and there's a bit of a conversation that takes place here between Nicodemus and Jesus, I've given you here an anatomy of that conversation, as you read through John's account, I've sort of pulled it apart, and what you see in this conversation is that they both speak three times. Nicodemus starts, and he makes a statement. He gives a, a verdict, if you like, which we'll come to in a moment. He, gives, he makes a statement. Then Jesus responds with just quite a short little statement. Nicodemus is quite perplexed by this statement, which we'll get to, and so Nicodemus responds with, a much smaller little question. Jesus responds with a bigger question, like a bigger statement. He talks more. Then Nicodemus is really thrown by that, and so Nicodemus has just a very little thing to say, and then Jesus goes with a very big thing to say. Does that make sense? What that is communicating is that in the conversation, the weight is, is shifting. The weight of the conversation goes from Nicodemus starting in the strong position, but it ends up with actually Jesus being in the strong position in this conversation. There's a flipping. Now, what is the content of this discussion? Well, the content is, over these two questions, who really knows? Who really knows what's going on with Jesus? And who's really seen what's actually happened? Who's perceived, seen correctly? That's the issue. I'll show you where that's the issue. You can notice in Nic the first thing Nicodemus says is he rocks up there in verse 2 and notice what he says. He says, Rabbi, we know we. Why is he speaking plural? He's coming representing other people, right? What's the general situation? All these people who've seen Jesus' signs and have, and have believed, in inverted commas, in his name. He comes and he says, 
we know, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing. He's saying, we've seen the signs you've done. We know who you are. And here's his verdict, their verdict. Jesus, you are a teacher who's come from God, whom God is with. Now, he, comes, he doesn't, make, doesn't ask Jesus a question, he just makes a statement. We've observed, we now know, here it is. I suspect he probably expected Jesus to go, well done, good job, you've sorted it out. He makes a statement. Now, we'll get to, Jesus doesn't say that, by the way, we'll get to what he does say in a moment. But to show you that this is the theme of the conversation, I'm going to jump to where the conversation ends a bit later on. If you jump to where it sort of ends, Jesus echoes Nicodemus' language back to Nicodemus. If you jump into verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Who's the we when Jesus speaks? No one. It's just him. He just used the plural. Why did he use the plural if it's only just him? He used the plural because he's deliberately echoing, parodying Nicodemus. Nicodemus who rocks up and says, we've seen, we know, this is who you are. Jesus says, well, after the conversation, well, we speak of what we've seen and what we know and this is the verdict. The conversation changes. The whole weight changes. Okay, that's the anatomy of the conversation. You're up, you, you ready? You got it? Okay, there's a key, one key point in the conversation where Jesus changes the thing he's talking about. He talks about two different things in this conversation and there's a key turning point. The turning point is verse 12. The key shifting point in this conversation is when Jesus says to Nicodemus, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That is, in the first part of the conversation, up to verse 12, he talks, Jesus talks about earthly things. And then from verse 12 onwards, he talks about heavenly things. So what we're going to do is look at what Jesus and Nicodemus talk about in those two categories. Start off with the earthly, and then we'll move to the heavenly. Let's look at the earthly things. What are the earthly things Jesus speaks about? When Jesus says, I've spoken to you about earthly things, he just means things that Nicodemus as an earthly guy, a guy who's here on the earth, as stuff he should know. How should he know this stuff? Well, he is a teacher of Israel. He's got the Old Testament scriptures. He's a member of the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. He should know God's Old Testament law. And Jesus is saying, the stuff I'm talking to you about, you should know, Nicodemus. It's, you've got full access to it here on earth. So he's going to talk about the earth. Those are the earthly things. Hey, what are the earthly things he talks about? And I've summarized it there. He talks about the necessity of being born from above. So let's have a look at this conversation. You can see it started, as we've talked about in verse 2, with Nicodemus making this statement, this verdict on who Jesus is. Jesus responds in a very odd way, it seems to me. Verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, when you think about this, you think, how, how is this related to what Nicodemus just said? Nicodemus turns up and says, 
We've seen the signs. We know who you are. You're a teacher from God. Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I think Nicodemus probably would get there looking around going, uh, are you talking to me? Like, is that, how's that related to what I've just told you about at all? Well, what's the connection? Think about it. What does Jesus say? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What did Nicodemus and the group he represents, they had seen what? They'd seen Jesus' signs. They'd seen Jesus' signs, which are meant to reveal his glory, his glorious identity, and they decided you're a teacher from God. Jesus goes, yeah, you didn't get that right. And let me tell you, unless, you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What you should be seeing here is my true identity as the Christ, the one at the center of all of God's plans to establish his rule, his kingdom. That's what you should be seeing. And the reason you can't see it, Nicodemus, is you need to be born again. Now, Nicodemus doesn't quite capture that. <laughs> Nicodemus gets a bit distracted by born again. Um, can a, and he says there, can a man, when he's old, enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, in verse 4? So he's distracted by this idea of being born again. And there is a bit of an ambiguity here. The word that's used for again can also mean from above. So was Jesus saying you have to be born again, or is he saying you have to be born from above? And it turns out it's the second one. Is that what Jesus actually means? Because if you have a look at what Jesus says in verse 5, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. So they're having this discussion about entering the kingdom of God. Now, you might well ask, and it's a fair question, well, why would I want to enter the kingdom of God? I mean, it seemed to matter to Jesus, and it seemed to matter to Nicodemus, but, I mean, not, not really something maybe you've ever thought about. Why, I mean, why should I enter the kingdom? Why would I want to enter the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is a beautiful thing. The kingdom of God is spoken about all the way through the Christian Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The kingdom of God is that moment when the one true living God establishes His good, His good rule over all things. See, when the one true living good God establishes His rule over all things, then everything, and I mean everything, is as it really ought to be. Where there's no more crap. There's no more darkness. I don't mean physical darkness like in a cave. I mean no more, no more sadness. No more grief. No more illness. No more violence. No more wickedness. No more hatred. When the one true living good God establishes His rule, it is as you would want it to be. That'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? That'd be a good day to be part of when that, when that sort of rule is established. That is what the one true living God has been seeking to do and seeks to do in the person of Jesus, establish that sort of rule, that sort of moment, the kingdom of God. 
And what Jesus is saying is, uh, if you want to be part of that kingdom, you want to be part of that moment, then you need to be born from above. You need to be born of water and spirit. Okay, uh, all right, but what's that? What's that? Well, this is something that he says that Nicodemus should have understood. This is something, this is an earthly thing. This is something that should be understood from what God had already revealed in the past. And you can see it in the Old Testament. If you jump into Ezekiel chapter 36 here on the screen, here is one of those Old Testament promises. A promise for the day when God would establish his kingdom. What would it be like? And here it's a a new covenant promise. And what we read here is, the Lord says, For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws." Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is just one of those fantastic passages you should know about from the Old Testament because this is a great promise that God's people look forward to when God establishes his kingdom, brings all his people back, and he cleanses them from all of their sin. And he puts his own spirit in them so that they might live for him and love him and seek to to follow him. This is the great day that they were looking forward to. And Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus, you want in on this, you want in on the kingdom, then you know, Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. You have to have this revolution in your life that's wrought by God himself if you want this, if you want to be part of this. So he's talking here about the necessity of this new birth, this birth from above. Now, just as a sort of side comment, you remember how I've sort of said to you, we we skipped over the first couple of verses, the first 18 verses in John chapter 1. I just said, oh, because they're so so rich and so deep and so big and it's a bit hard to handle. So what I'm doing is drip feeding John chapter 1 little bit by little bit over the weeks as we look through the rest, right? And the particular thing that Jesus is talking about here with Nicodemus is mentioned by John in his overview in John chapter 1. Just pointed out to you. When John says this in John chapter 1, he's, John writes, the word came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Remember, they believed in him, but Jesus wouldn't believe in them. There was something dodgy about them. They wouldn't receive him properly. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here Jesus is talking about the necessity of being born from above if you want to be part of the kingdom of God. How do you get hold of this new birth? Here is Jesus making the point to Nicodemus, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. How do you get hold of that new birth? Jesus doesn't talk about it explicitly here in this passage, but fortunately, a bit later in John's account, he does. And you have to jump forward to John chapter 7. And when you jump forward to John chapter 7, here's Jesus again again up in Jerusalem at a festival time. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is standing there in the temple. 
And if you remember last week, I talked about how there's a bit of a replacement theme in John's Gospel. Jesus replaces a lot of the Jewish institutions and Jewish rituals. Well, that's what's going on in John chapter 7. Jesus turns up to this festival, and you've got to imagine it's a week-long festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. And every day, as part of that festival, the way they celebrated it in the first century, was they would get a big, big pitcher of water and they would carry this pitcher of water out from one of the sort of gates, carry it all the way into the temple and pour it out in the temple court, right? They would do this every day. Well then, given that you know just that much, notice what John records here. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John writes, now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus stands up at this great temple moment where water has this great symbolism of this one day the spirit will be poured out. And Jesus stands up and said, you're thirsty for this? You're thirsty for the spirit? Here praying about it? Here in the temple? Come to me. Believe in me and that spirit will flow from God in your life. That's how you get the new birth. You believe in Jesus. You entrust yourself to him. You believe that he is who he said he is, the only one who has come from God. God come amongst us, come to save us. You believe who he is, you entrust yourself to him, and God gives you new birth, birth from above, through the spirit. So, Jesus has been talking about the necessity of the new birth. Let's think about that necessity for a moment. There's a shot of Eastern Avenue. There are so many people at this university. Does it ever strike you when you're sort of scurrying between lectures up and down Eastern Avenue or elsewhere on the campus? So many people, 50,000 people here at this university every week. So many of them. What does Jesus say? Unless you are born from above, you will not enter the kingdom of God. All those people, our friends, unless they are born from above, unless they come to Jesus, and believe in him, they will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has been talking about earthly things. He's now going to talk about heavenly things. Now, if poor old Nicodemus was struggling to understand the earthly things, how do you think Nick is going to go when Jesus talks about the heavenly things, well, my guess is, it, it, well, who knows? Who knows what went on for him? But I imagine it was pretty, pretty tricky. Let's think about the heavenly things. There in verse 12, Jesus says, you know, if I speak of earthly things you don't believe, how will you cope when I speak about the heavenly things? And then he talks about these heavenly things. What are the heavenly things? Well, the earthly things were the things that anyone on earth with access to God's scriptures could understand. Things are the things that have to be revealed to you 
because they're about what's going on in heaven. So how are you going to access what's going on in heaven? Well, you need somebody to come from heaven to tell you what's going on. And that's what Jesus actually says. There in verse 13, he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying, you're not going to get access to the heavenly things from anywhere else. You need to get it from the Son of Man, which is Jesus' word, his phrase from the Old Testament that he used to apply to himself. You have to get it from me. I'm the only one who can give it to you. What information then does Jesus give about the heavenly things? What he says is he reveals the plan of God and the plan of God always is an insight, reveals the character of God. So he reveals the plan of God, which shows the character of God. What's the plan of God? Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Moses lifting up snake in the desert, what's this bit? Okay, you could be forgiven for maybe not knowing Numbers chapter 21 so great, unless you're a mathematician, of course, because it's your favourite book in the Bible, because it's all about numbers. But then it's not sometimes, and you get a bit disappointed, maybe. But no, this is good stuff. The book of Numbers describes some of the things that happened when God brought his Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt and brought them, in, and they're in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. This is an incident that happened en route. Let's have a read of it. They, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Clearly needs to be read with that tone of voice, by the way, because they're having a whinge, right? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. I did make the joke that sounds a little bit like my family on a Friday because we do shopping on Saturday and they get to Friday and they go, oh, there's no bread. We normally have water though, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> there's no bread, there's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Fortunately, we stopped them saying that when they were about three years old because, you know, that was just rude. But the Israelites, nothing's stopping them. There's no bread, there's no water. We detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Yeah. I mean, we used to get them to put their hands on the wall when they'd said something a bit naughty, but this is a bit full on. <laughs> the people came to Moses and said, they learned the lesson, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So there you are, next to your tent in the wilderness, and out of your sleeping bag comes this poisonous snake, grabs it and bites you. All you had to do was just sort of lean out and look at the bronze snake that was there in the middle of the camp, look at it, and you're fine. Look at that which has been lifted up on the pole, and you will live. Amazing. What, is, what does Jesus say? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
impossible to read that and not think about Jesus' crucifixion, isn't it? The Son of Man being lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life, not just rescue from snakebite, but that you might live eternally by looking at Him who is lifted up and lived. So what are the heavenly things that God is revealing here through Jesus? He's revealing, first of all, God's plan, that He's going to lift up the Son of Man so that everyone who believes in Him might live. But remember, God's plans always reveal His character. God's plans reveal His character. What is the character of God being revealed here? Now, I'll just uh, point out that even last week I talked about how through John's Gospel there is a greater grace a new covenant replacing the old covenant, and it always comes with a greater revelation. What's the greater revelation that comes here through God's plan of lifting up the sun? Well, we come to the most well-known verse maybe in the whole of the Bible is the explanation of that. John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. A very wise preacher once said, um, you should never, ever preach on John 3.16 because no matter what you say, it'll sound lame compared to the verse itself. It's just so good. The verse is so good. But, you know, here I am. <laughs> I'm just going to embrace my lameness for the sake of Jesus and communicating his gospel. Hey? So I'm just going to embrace my lameness and say, what a wonderful verse. Wonderfully famous, but, but potentially tragically, tragically, maybe not tragically, but maybe very misunderstood verse. Often it's just lifted entirely out of this context that we've been exploring through Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And I'm very glad that this particular movement has ceased. Uh, there was a movement where at international sporting events, people would constantly hold up John 3.16 signs. And you couldn't watch sport on TV without somewhere, someone in the crowd holding up a sign that said John 3.16. They're always trying to get it on camera. I mean, I can remember particularly watching the Winter Olympics, watching the luge, you know, where they get down like this. And there was some, some guy standing in all his winter, you know, just, it's very cold at the winter. They're rugged up in his big sort of polar suit and his big fluffy thing around. And every time the thing was coming past him, would go, John 3.16. John 3.16, all the way through the whole competition, right, to get it on TV. And so, you know, you would see it at all these different sort of sporting matches. It became such a thing that it was even parodied by the Simpsons, on The Simpsons. Yeah, it, was, it was like a meme before there were memes. Like, it was the real meme, right? In fact, I don't have time to tell you the story, but I'm going to say it anyway. At my... At my... At Jenny, my wife, when we got engaged, we had an engagement party, we said to somebody else, Take photos of the engagement party. We're too busy having a good time. You take all the photos. When it came back, unfortunately, it was in this era. Every single photo has someone holding up John 3.16 in it. <laughs> Every photo. Anyway, I don't want to tell you my sad stories, but um, <laughs> this verse, John, for God so loved the world, I'm on a bit of a crusade to, inc to introduce a new spelling of the word so to the English language. You know how we have a couple of spellings of the word two? There's T-O and there's T-double-O. They mean different things. So 
has lots of meanings. And I think we should have some new spellings of the word so. There should be so, S-O, and there should be so, S-double-O, right? <laughs> My question is, how should we write, or how do you understand this famous verse? Just be honest. How have you always understood this? For God so loved the world, like that, like that sort of so, amount, quantity, or for God loved the world in this way, thus, so. Which way have you understood it? Just be honest. Who, who's always understood it the first way? For God so loved the world. Yeah, you're wrong. So, <laughs> it's the second one. For God loved the world in this way. Um, some of the English translations do render it that way. Most don't, and I think it's just because we are emotionally attached to the other one, right? But, anyway, you can argue with me later if you like. What this verse reveals, what this amazing reverse reveals, is, is just how God has demonstrated his love. What's the character of God revealed here in the lifting up of the sun? The love of God. Now, remember I said there's a greater grace with a greater revelation. We've always known from the Bible that God is a God of love. When God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, he said he is abounding in love. So we've known that, but it's not till you get to Jesus when you see the extent of God's love. This just shows you how much God loves, that he would give his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the wonder of a God who loves us this much. So how much does God love us? Does he love us like this much? Does he love us this much? No? God loves us this much. Not happy yet? Okay. God loves us this much. No. No. God loves us. You ready? God loves us this much. Yes? He loves us this much. That's how much he loves us. This is the greater revelation of the character of God in Jesus, that he loved us this much to send his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because the, this is wonderful news, but there is, there is a... Um, what's the word? a sobering point in this verse, that if you don't come to Jesus and believe in him, you will perish. And Jesus talks about it here. He says very interestingly in verse 18, he says, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I'll explain this by reference to this picture, blue poles. Anyone ever seen blue poles in the National Art Gallery? I remember going to see it as a kid and walking in and looking at blue poles, and it's huge, it's a huge painting, looking at it, and I was not impressed. I mean, I really thought, well, maybe I can be a world-famous artist. I could pull off those babies once a week, right? Like, that's not hard. So I thought. 
But you see, when, when we look at a, an internationally well-renowned artwork like that, and we say, ah, piece of rubbish, who's actually being condemned? The artist? Or me? When I make that sort of judgment. What Jesus is saying is, those who choose to not believe in the Son, they stand condemned already. Not, not because of it, even without looking at the rest of their life, they stand condemned already. Why? Because they've chosen to not entrust themselves to the one that God has sent. That is enough to condemn them, that they would reject the one God has sent. It reveals their heart. So here we have Jesus talking about the earthly things and the heavenly things. What you really are seeing here is this is God's comprehensive love-filled plan to save. He wants to save the world. And it has two parts, which you might notice. The heavenly things correspond to what you might call God's objective work. This is what God did once for all to save the world in the cross of Jesus. But it also reveals this story, God's subjective work, the bit that God does to save in each and every person. So yes, Jesus had to be lifted up, bearing the sins of the world so that we might live. But also, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need God to birth you from above. You need to be born again of the Spirit by coming to Christ in faith. There is both an objective work, once for all time, and a subjective work that God has to do in each and every person who believes. This is God's comprehensive, love-filled plan to save. So let's wrap it up. We started with the situation. Nicodemus was just a special instance of it. Lots of people saw, but didn't really believe. Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus by giving his verdict on this situation. It started with Nicodemus giving his verdict on Jesus. Jesus has flipped it all around and now Jesus is giving his verdict on the whole world. Jesus says, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done in God. I'll explain this by example. I met a guy many years ago at O-Week. I was wearing my EU shirt. Met a guy, just sort of introducing myself, said, hey, are you interested in finding out about Jesus, reading the Bible? The guy said, yes. Not a believer. He was a first-year art student. We started meeting, the bio, meeting each week, reading Mark's Gospel, one chapter a week in the bottom of Manning. He turned up one week and said, I got so excited reading whatever chapter I just read, I went on and read the whole rest of the book. So that's fantastic. What did you think? He said, I think it's all true. I'm going, that's fantastic. Do you want to become a Christian? I, I guess so, yeah. And I was so excited at this point. And then I thought, oh, I should just you know, check he understands what we mean by that. And I said, well, you know, of course, you know, becoming a Christian means you're following Jesus, means you know, you're repenting from your sin and you're actually going to trust in him and live his way. And he's just looking at me. He just said, oh, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to give up my life. He, be he believed, but he didn't believe, right? 
And why don't people come to Jesus? Because they don't want their life exposed. They don't want to have to give up the little bits of the darkness that we like to keep playing in. And that's a great tragedy. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, representative, I guess, of those in darkness. But he did come to Jesus. What, did, he, did he end up, as a result of this conversation, really trusting Jesus? We don't know. He reappears a few times in the Gospels, but it's not quite clear. What about your friends? Will they come to Jesus? Now, to the next three weeks at EU public meeting, the next three weeks... We're going to do special public meetings, particularly targeted for your friends. We would love you to invite your friends along so they could hear something of Jesus. We're going to target everything that we do towards those who don't yet know Jesus. Even if your friends don't come, we'd love you to come anyway, because hopefully you will learn something more of how to talk about Jesus helpfully with your friends. But it would be great for you to come along. And the particular thing we'll be doing is looking at resurrection and hope. And I'm going to start next week by looking at John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus. That's next week. So I hope you can come along for that. Do be praying about it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son was lifted up to give us eternal life. We thank you that we're on a campus where we can um, talk to our non-Christian friends um, and share this great message of life with them. Um, Father, we pray that you would give us um, yeah, really caring and broken hearts for the friends that we uh, know that um, do not know you. And Lord, may that um, sobering fact um, be filling our hearts um, to uh, be bold and courageous um, and invite them to public meetings um, in the next few weeks and in the next um, yeah, little while of meetings. Help us to uh, be bold and respond to your word and help us, Lord, to um, yeah, know that um, the great love that you have, that um, you loved us in such a way that um, we could have your son to have that eternal life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining and I hope to see you next week.